And people say, well, you could do it with your left hand. And I can say categorically, it doesn't feel like somebody else is doing it. It just feels like <laughs> nobody's doing it. <laughs> with a little time to work it out, and all the results could astonish you. I was watching through the window, you were going through the dance Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the End Podcast where we like to talk about comics and films and I suppose you could say TV shows but we never really talk about TV shows because I don't really have time to do that as well. Uh, we are on all your favourite listening locations, so Spotify and SoundCloud and other RSS feeds that I've lost the logins to, so I assume people are listening to them on us because we're fucking great. <laughs> we're also on YouTube where we chop up episodes and there's some original content, and that is the end pod one shots. We have an Instagram and a Twitter for now because I've just got a bit bored with the old thing, and that is the end underscore pod. So get it while you still can. Right, now all that business is out of the way. I can take a breath. I don't have to introduce myself. I'm Matt. I'm part of the regular co-hosting team. So here's a voice that you'll recognise, or probably not. But <laughs> if you don't, <laughs> then hit subscribe. Hit subscribe <laughs> if you don't recognise this next voice. This is your key. This, this is your trigger, nonetheless. To subscribe, to follow, to like, to share. Bah, 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 bah. It, it's Tim. Hello, Tim. I think there's probably tens of people out there who recognize my voice. Yeah. Oh, Tim, I think we've got our second Brussels. Are you serious? I think I'm serious. There's a little Holy place shit. in America called Ashbourne. Really? Ashbourne. Ashbourne. I'm going to look that Do up. Me... What... Well, I can tell you. I've got the analytics what open. What uh no. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna... Well, I imagine it's in quite good repair and they have a, yeah. a lustful approach to oh god, I'm I'm logged out, Tim. I'm logged out. Ashbourne. Can you spell it for me? Um no. <laughs> 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 Look, I'm, I'm just trying to I'd reward our regular listeners. I'm not like uh, no, oh, well I'm I'm really trying to reward this dedicated person by looking up where they're by stocking Ash, them. <laughs> Ashburn and I think what's VA? Is that Virginia? Oh Virginia, yeah. All right. Welcome, Ashburn. And there's another dude or lady, but I think like dude is unisexual. Who listens to every single episode over the course of a week twice? What? Twice? I know. Outrageous showmanship. Wow. What I think is they probably fell asleep and had it going at triple the speed or something. Yeah, if I oh look at God. the last 30 days, yeah, it's a place called Council Bluffs. Oh, and that's in Iowa. That's in Iowa. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good. 
And yeah, in the last 30 days, they are our top listener with 57 plays. But if I go to the last 12 months, they have listened to 172 episodes. Holy crap. Have you been making sneaky episodes behind my back? Have you? Who have you been recording with, Tim? All right, let me just tell you a little bit about Ashburn. This is in Loudoun County, Virginia. This is that's the wealthiest county in the entire United States. Get the fuck out. So I think you're right. This is like in uh, Ashburn's probably in in very good repair. Let's see, notable people. Let me see if I can recognize anybody here. No, Wilson Pickett, the singer. Oh, that's okay. a pretty good. Yeah, that's a name anyway. I recognize. Yeah. So anyway, Ashburn, welcome, and also Council Bluffs. Holy shit. Council Bluffs listens to our show more than I do. <laughs> well, I was going to tell you, listens to it more than us two put together. 172 <laughs> plays, Salt Lake City, 62. I can't believe I'm down in Stoke-on-Trent, but it'll have to do 40 plays. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's been patient enough. We have a... Let's, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what I'll do next. Let's say what we're doing today, and then I can introduce our guest. Mm-hmm. A special guest to me. The listeners won't care. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he doesn't. Maybe his reputation precedes him. So on this week's episode, we're continuing with the source material behind James Gunn's proposed DCU. We have episode up already for Supergirl, and the first part of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, the saga of the Swamp Thing, and this is part two. So joining us today, all the way across the water from Pink Buzz. It's Joe. Hello, Joe. What's up, guys? Uh, Happy to be here. I missed the uh, first episode for uh, scheduling conflicts, but here for the second episode where we cover, uh, you guys have book two of the Absolute Editions, but I bought the slipcase with the uh, the trades. So for me, it's book three and four. Three and four for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Is yours newsprint or is yours on like more rarefied no, new, paper? Newsprint, newsprint. I went to um, Florida, Matt, as you know, a couple weeks ago, and I couldn't okay. find my third trade, and so I I got it delivered by Amazon. And the one I got, so the one I had originally was newsprint. This one's a little bit more matte, like very much contemporary DC page print. So it gives it a little bit different feel. I know you talked about how your absolutes are just like sick, unreal. Yeah, yeah. Well, it has this really, as the absolute editions do, that these really thick slipcase, and you slide it out, and it has the most beautiful velvety moleskin suede sort of touch, and it's printed on, and it really gives it that bucolic feel about it. Yeah, it's really, mm-hmm. really that nice. That started to off super sexual, the way you're describing that. <laughs> well, I'm gonna put so that into a into a Playboy magazine, man. <laughs> Lips grayed out and I'm a a very precious guy. I um I mean look at me, mate. I'm dripping. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Uh, From my face, not uh, I'm not dripping. I can't because my hands recovery. Uh, people say, well, you could do it with your left hand. And I can say categorically, it doesn't feel like somebody else is doing it. It just feels like <laughs> nobody's doing it. <laughs> oh, it's been, when you're in your 40s, when you're in your 40s, that hand has been neglected way, way too much. Like that's not, um, that's that's the catching hand. That's not the doing hand. <laughs> uh, 
But if, if you still have a catching hand at 40, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just just well practiced. That's what I'm saying. Just well practiced. <laughs> Not that it's a competition. <laughs> as, I'm, as, I, as I mop my brow. Um, so, Joe. Yes. Joe, Joe, Joe. Yes. Is there anything you'd like to say and your thoughts in general about this? Have you read it before? Just a, a little catch up to get where we are. Uh, the initial runs, how did you feel about them? I had read up to book three of the uh, trades. So I had read pretty much most of what you guys had already covered and half of what we're going to talk about today. So, you know, it's of its time. People who get into this stuff, like we just read Shade the Changing Man recently on mm. uh, our show. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, exposition and stuff like that. A lot of, you know, like people like to say, oh, it's a little wordy. But uh, I mean, that's of its time, right? And this mm -hmm. set the tone for, and not just that, visual aesthetic too. Like if you look at the psychedelic scenes and this and that, so many books now in modern comics have copied the visual styles of how they interpret psychedelic or mm -hmm. surreal scenes within the comics and aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. You know, so take example, Spurrier's Alienated from Boom Comics. A mm -hmm. lot of that psychedelic aesthetic definitely can be gone back uh, Swamp Thing. And the same thing with uh, Shade the Changing Man, uh, Chris Bacallo. He borrowed a lot of the same visual aesthetics for the psychedelic surreal scenes in Shades. So this comic, you can see its influence throughout the years. You know, and that's a team effort. It's not just Alan Moore. That's the whole creative team with Alan Moore. Yeah. And I think that's a huge, huge, and, you know, like people like to call horror now elevated horror. Well, this is pretty much elevated horror, right? Like mm -hmm. if you want to compare it in style, this book is kind of like what you would compare elevated horror to today. People like to use that word. It's a buzzword, right? So... <laughs> when I hear elevated, I'm like, so it's slow. <laughs> it's <boring. laughs> I'm gonna be at one point. I'm gonna say, is this going a bit too slow? <laughs> yeah, I'd say there are stretches, but uh, we're gonna be covering some of my favorite stories in this one, like book three. I think that one has my three favorite stories out of everything I've read so far, yeah. which is fantastic. And he almost splits it up like you got the overreaching story, and then. Shade did the same thing. It's always like there's these mini stories within the big grand, yeah. and it's always like two chapters, two chapters, two chapters. Yeah. And that seems to be a theme that goes throughout. And then later on, as you go, like you get less of those little mini stories breaking up. There's a big character's first appearance gets introduced in this, and he sets Swamp Thing off on these little missions. And that's where you get these two story, uh, two issue yeah, yeah. stories throughout. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. in the most general sense, how did this compare to? the equivalent of the first absolute, the first third of this. Because I remember feeling a bit underwhelmed by it, that yes, it was enjoyable, it was good, had some fantastic allegories and all that kind of razzmatazz. But ultimately I was left to feel a little bit underwhelmed mm -hmm. comparing it to some of my favourite Vertigo, favourite DC, or just mm -hmm. in general favourite comics. How did you feel about this one in comparison to the the first episode we did well the first one if you remember a couple things we talked about were the first two trades kind of like Watchmen. we talked about this before it's like a comic that is revered in the community but that i would never send a person really necessarily to read like you'd never say like hey this this guy's getting into comics let me send him to Watchmen. like you you would Oof. never if you knew you would never do that mm -hmm. similarly you'd never send them to swamp thing initially you know this mm -hmm. is something that that more 
I think seasoned readers can get into. However, this time I thought that the story once more sets up his own story and sets up his aesthetic, mm-hmm. the whole creative team does. I think it really gets its footing here. This really worked for me very, very well. Like Joe, I loved a lot of these stories. And it's so true. It is like a another effect it has or another influence it has. It's sort of like the initiation of the monster of the week. It's like an X-Files. There's an overarching <laughs> mystery or plot yes. line. And then within that, there are certain, there's these sort of one-off stories that are themselves excellent and like so mm-hmm. readable and, mm-hmm. and so crazy and in some ways so depraved. I loved. Oh like, the yeah, weird... there's one in particular. Yes. Yeah. Holy crap. I really loved these, this middle portion. I can't wait Book to see three. it. Excellent. Oh, yeah. God. By the time I reached the end and I thought to myself, he's going to tie this all together. He see did like an apocalyptic, a prophetic apocalyptic end to the story. So you kind yeah. of think, well, that's there. And it's, and it's little, little bits are dropped in, little crumbs are left all through all these stories. And then bit by bit, you quite rightly say, it's like the X-Files and you have these two issue journeys. And it's okay, we'll do, it's complete spoilers because I feel like with stuff like this, people are going to click on it because they want to know what we've got to say because they probably either like it or or not. But yeah, when it introduces John Constantine, he's kind of like the cancer man from the X-Files. And by the end of it, I just sat there and thought, shit, even for 15 issues or however long it was, I don't believe that modern writers would ever be able to plan something like this knowing especially when you consider where the character was and it's a new writer that's been handpicked by, is it Lean Wen? Yeah, yeah Lean Wen, right? Yeah, the co-creator, yeah. Handpicked him to continue his arc, having looked at his Marvel Man and having looked at his Captain Britain stuff that he did in the Marvel Comics like magazine kind of thing that was published yeah, in England. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this is... It reminded me of when Jason Aaron did Last Days of Magic, Doctor Strange, which I still think is one of the best modern Marvel story arcs. All these little sideman adventures or like side characters that you're thinking, oh, maybe they'll have something. And at the end, it all comes together in this like mm-hmm. cacophonous ending to the story. It just blew me away. It's the first time where I'd read a comic and I went, they can be like films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the structure... And the detail and the intention and the precision that this middle volume was written with, it's tiptoeing on perfection. Yeah. And I remember last time also, Matt, we talked about, Joe, we had talked about how it was not always clear from the first two volumes, the first absolute, the first, you know, um, third of the series that Swamp Thing was necessarily the main character. He was sort of like a side piece at times. whereas Like almost a voyeur in what's going on. Yes. And here he's much more central, but also Moore does such a great job of keeping a distance as well. So he's the central character. He's a central thread running throughout, but you're also at a distance and your posture as is he, like you, the reader are like, okay, I... I can see something building here. I don't know what the answers are. Mm. And likewise, throughout the whole thing, he's like, I need answers. I need answers. And you're, you, the reader, are just like that. In middle of the week or like early in the week, I I texted Matt. I was like, you know, I, sometimes I read Alan Moore, like, I just don't feel like I completely understand what's going on a hundred percent. You have to be willing to just let that go and have, let him take you on the ride because it, it totally comes together. Yeah. And on that, the first couple of what was the first story arc? Because he was again, he was, was a little face. bit nuke face. He was kind of 
separate from the story again in that. And I thought, yeah, oh, here we go again. However, from that, he really starts to take agency in the title. Totally. Front and center. See, the totally. first one of book three is The Toxic Man. What's the title of it? Nuke, uh, Nuke Face. Nuke Face, yeah. yep. That's a great one, too. Like, just this oh unhinged man that gives off nuclear waste and <laughs> melt people. And right there, Swamp Thing gets taken out in the beginning, right? He touches mm. him. He yeah, falls, yeah, like, yeah. paralyzed. And the story continues. It, it yeah. follows this guy's story. Abigail finds him, and like, what the hell's going on? And just horrific facial expressions mm-hmm. and like the vegetation melting away and then you can mm-hmm. kind of see a little bit of the skull underneath of swamp things the visuals are just uh it's almost stomach turning sometimes the visuals totally yeah Ghastly. it matches Ghastly. the storytelling yeah exactly origin of like body horror setting aside ec mm-hmm. comics this is like the big yep. two origin of body horror in some ways yeah it's not just that the transformation of there was a werewolf arc and there was a vampire arc as well. And each of those, the transformation where they, I've never seen anything like it. It's almost like the werewolf is wearing the skin of of a person. And then the skin stretches over the snout of the wolf, peeks through and just climbs from inside of the lady's mouth. Honestly, horror is one of the hardest things to write probably second only to comedy and it's Mm -hmm. for the same reason it's really hard to give a sense of timing when the timing is the turn of the page of course you can have misdirection you know the what's around the corner the ever pursuing evil you can only really trade that with the way that you read them but this Mm -hmm. from page to page it was spectacularly tense totally totally agree with that yeah I don't know if you guys think about what you thought. Well, I guess we'll get to this, but just throwing it out there about the final, the ultimate monster or whatever we're calling. Basically, I thought of it as like the nothing from the never ending story, which came out. I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but similar type of thing, like this darkness just descends all, all over like the known universe. And it got me thinking because the never ending story came out around the same time, I think like 84 or 85 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if that's just a coincidence or if in some ways, one of the big themes here is nuclear, you know, like annihilation. I wonder if like that, and then that was like a huge thing back then. I don't remember. I don't know. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I remember that being like scary when I was the, Ra- the Reagan years. Yeah, yeah, totally. I wonder if that's the whole thing is like a, some kind of commentary on like nuclear annihilation. Ultimately, the way that I interpreted the whole of this, the whole of these two volumes or mm. the whole of Uh, this absolute edition was in actual fact, each of those small arcs, two issue arcs were an analog for American fear. Mm So translated into this American Gothic style, you have racism, you have serial killers, you have nuclear threat, you have misogyny. It's almost like each is an interpretation of American fear of that age. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. You could tie it into like more modern themes, like the, the nuke face, social media, how he's spreading toxic behavior. Like yeah. this guy's almost oblivious. He thinks he's doing good, but really he's yeah. spreading his toxicity to everyone and it's destroying everything in its path. But he's oblivious, yeah. almost oblivious to it. And that's, you could tie that right back to social media and how negativity and, and just toxic way of being spreads like wildfire through social media. Like you could even tie it to themes that are current in today's society as well. Like, I mean, totally. it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
at the plantation, that one really struck me because <laughs> it so elegantly shows you how the weight of history impinges upon, even if you were unaware or unintentionally behaving, like the weight of history is just so powerful. I thought that was just a beautiful story. Very disturbing, but I thought very smart. So many of these are just so smart. Even though they were, I wouldn't say a trope that we'd seen before, but it moved away from this universal monsters kind of thing. The way that it used the vampiric law, thinking outside the box, they're uh, eternal, so why not have them in a sunken city underwater? Why would they always be in caves? Why are they under a bridge when there's this whole expanse of free space that they can adopt? I thought it was really can. a really canny way of... And they don't have to be in hiding, right? Because they're underwater where exactly. there's lack of light, so they can be active as frequently or as often as they like. That is, I think, my favorite arc. Is it called Stillwater? No, The one first knows. part? Yeah, Stillwaters is the first part. And I just love it. Like Matt said, the underwater vampire thing where the city, where they just broke the dams and be mm. damned. If you're still in the town, you get flooded and drowned and like so many innocent people that refuse to move, uh, you know, and it's just such a tragic story in itself. And and the way they introduce it with the kids swimming and yeah. the one kid, they're all like, what's going on? What's going on? And they don't reveal right away. And then you get to that beautiful shot from the water underneath the yeah. kid. And then you yeah. see a feeding frenzy on him and he's, you know, almost paralyzed in water and all the rest of friends are like, what's going on? What's going on? Oh, it's such a great setup. So well done. And like Not the designs too, the art of the punk style water vampires is so fucking cool. Like I, cool, I dug yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That one I think is going to stick with me in a year. I'll remember that. I'll remember. I think those issues yeah. the most vividly yeah. some of the visuals in there and just some of the storytelling, the giant mother vampire mm -hmm. has to be like maneuvered by guys. And she goes to meet her like lover, whatever would be like the town square the cannibalism of the little vampire yeah. fish and that was so intense I, there were some panels and they were found it like revolting in the best possible way mm, yeah mm, yeah so good and like we said the two-story the little two-story mini parts is that is directly linked to the appearance more or less of john constantine which would be issue 37 which was probably the biggest key issue in this entire run of alan moore's is john constantine's first appearance in issue 37 that is his first appearance huh like yeah that's, yeah yeah interesting okay i was surprised how big a role he had i was expecting him to <laughs> appear and then disappear and much like most of the superhero comics actually were but no he has a really big role from the point he appears to the end of this arc and, and I think it's important if anyone's a DC fan to understand the relationship in modern comics that isn't really explained between John and Swamp Thing, you have to go back and read this to really see mm -hmm. why they're so interconnected in, in each other's story, right? Like this mm -hmm. became a crucial part of Swamp Thing and John Constantine's story as well. Like these two characters are going to be forever tied together because of Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing. And it seemed like he appears basically fully formed. The characterization yeah. of Constantine is very good. From the initial thing where, like, his girlfriend gets murdered by that weird dude with the head on backwards. I don't even know. Yeah. That was, the, like, so involved. The Musevich in like or whatever it's called. Yeah, or... yeah, yeah. It's with like its hands you know, stitched into its own back yeah. as well. And then, oh, yeah. dude. While they oh. explain how they created it, the Bruja or whatever they're called, yeah, and they explain the, how the they witches. created him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the characterization was there right off the bat. It wasn't like a, char a sketched characterization. Like he comes fully formed, which I thought was cool. One of the things 
that I noticed specifically in this, and it's also true of the first, how well you know, the background characters, the little pages of dialogue, they all speak with a realism and they're not, it's, he wasn't afraid of writing them with a grimace. A character that was supposed to be a ne'er-do-well, he'd write them like that and he'd write them in a despicable way. However, all the characters supporting uh, tertiary and primary were all written so well, it still makes me struggle a little bit with how badly Abigail speaks, even in this I one know. still. I don't... I know. I reckon she's supposed to just be an airhead. Like, she's written with that... Per it's not poor writing, it's just it's intentionally writing like a bit of a dippy blonde sort of thing. Yeah, so that was probably my main critique of the first third, was that she had nothing to do, and when she did do anything, it was, like, completely stupid. And I think she's better here. I think she's a, a bit more well-developed when Swamp Thing arrives in her apartment and she, yeah, she doesn't yeah. have time, the time of day for him, basically. And then he kind of feels upset about that and kind of walks off. And that was like a little twist or a little development of her character. But in general, yeah, I mean, I don't know what she, she doesn't really have a ton to do. She's not really involved in the final stuff, right? She kind of like disappears a bit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. She gets her own remember. little story arc uh, where the guy snaps the pictures and she gets into trouble. Oh, in that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So she has her own little shit going oh, on. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That leads to the probably the most erotic four panels. Uh, <laughs> which issue is it? Where she so eats true. his fruit? When she's eating his. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's oh, like yeah. it up from the back. <laughs> And she starts leaning down, and oh, wait, I'm gonna find it real quick because it's so bad. It's so bad. Even what Swamp Thing says, because he's kind of stroking her head as she's giving him. Yeah, bubble, exactly. Here it is. <laughs> and he's got this like, face, like, like, yeah. Eat my yummy, yummy eating slut. Yeah, he's like, if you're gonna be away for a few days, we've got more important things to talk about <laughs> right now. Uh, for instance, boom, boom, I know you haven't eaten since breakfast. Boom, boom, then he has his boom, hand boom. on her head and be like, uh, <laughs> please be my guest. And she's like, eating his fruit. It's so bad. It's so oh, it's fucking so... bad. We said like that the guy's, the guy's literally made of wood, right? Like he could easily manufacture some kind of phallus. It's just the whole thing is so perverse. It's, it's issue, 40, <laughs> issue 47, page four. No, page six or seven. Anyway, oh, so yeah, God. if you're looking for those panels, it's the first five panels that leads up to it. Uh, then you wild. got, yeah, then you got the pervert in the bushes taking the pictures the whole time. Because yeah. well, he's trying to get nudie pics of it coming out the wall too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It starts yeah, with yeah, yeah. he playing to him. <laughs> he got some dirtiness, just not the type of dirtiness he was expecting. <laughs> to be fair, yeah. though, if he's some kind of illicit peeping tom hiding in the bushes. I bet he still fucking has a good old-fashioned hand shandy. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's, going, it's a bit fucking weird. It's more than a, a bit off a bit more than I can chew, but I'm here. I'm here. It's what we came for. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. That was, uh, that was with Constantine and Swamp Thing, this basically <laughs> was the genesis of Vertigo before Vertigo even existed. It kind of created a whole publication house. And also, uh, Neil Gaiman... Mm -hmm attributes a lot of the stuff that he came up with in Sandman was either well not a lot let's not be disingenuous but there were many things in Sandman that had their origins in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing you mentioned uh, Cain and Abel previously Cain and Abel yeah 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 this might be a good time to bring up Karen Berger who we didn't talk about last time arguably the greatest oh. editor in like the history of comics she did she edited this she did Sandman or, excuse me Fables Hellblazer 
the Invisibles, yeah. Hundred Bullets, Breacher, yeah, V, yeah. Y. She's I the mean, mastermind behind Vertigo, basically. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. She, she's she created Vertigo for DC Comics, which oh, kind of uh, ushered in indie comics as we know it now. If it weren't for Vertigo, mm. would Image have reached the heights it's reached now? Thanks to the road that Vertigo paved for all these other, like Boom, uh, Image, Vertigo paved that road that these companies are now fruitfully living by. You know, so totally, totally, yep. So I think well, she's here, a, like a, a genius. She also put pay to the Comics Code Authority because the nuclear arc that was the opening arc in this was written for the previous Absolute and the first two volumes. However, she said, there's no way we'll be able to get this through the Comics Code. And I can't remember which arc replaced it, but it was towards the end of the, the first Absolute, the first two volumes. However, they brought the story back as the opening of this start of the story because it fitted in well with the narrative flow. And she said, fuck it, we just won't get this CCA approval and we'll just run this comic without it. Oh, so great. What a badass. Yeah. It's kind of like with the Air Jordans thing when they were only allowed a certain percentage of the, the basketball shoe trainer to be coloured. And I'm only quoting the film Air now, so I'm not doing this with my, <laughs> my learned or required knowledge. I'm just repeating the film. And they said, yeah, fuck it. This is how we'll get him. We'll give him the most individual shoe in the whole league that is branded with his name. And if they don't like it, we'll just pay the fines week in, week out. Yeah, yeah, totally. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, I'm looking through the covers. There's no Comic Code Authority stamp on anything past the first issue. Well, the comics code was such a joke, right? I mean, <laughs> comics code made basically made EC go bankrupt. Yeah, uh, you know, so it's be, it's more or less because of the comics code that it completely crippled EC comics. There was a point in the seventies when Jim Shooter was a day or a week, depending on which version of the story, from Marvel acquiring DC, because they were in that much trouble in the 70s. Jim Shooter went to whoever the head of Marvel was at that time. I can't remember, but he wasn't like a like a comics, comics guy. He was like a business guy. And they said, well, if they're failing with the characters, what makes you think that we'll be able to make them succeed? He says, we don't need to. All we need to do is take Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and he named two more. Just doing them, well, we'll get us our money back within two years. And he said, like, there was a modest, this is my modest projection. Jim Shooter basically was rejected. He went back a week later with a, a number of folders and files from multiple accountants, all agreeing with his projections. However, it would have created a monopoly. However, in that time, some rights pinged back to them from licensing, which took them the percentile over their mm. allowable cut of the market. Had Jim Shooter have put it through the first time with the accountant's reports, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, The Flash would all now be Marvel properties. Wow. It's imagine. fucking wild, isn't it? Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah we'd only have the nauseating pop culture films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think maybe maybe the whole film industry should maybe just take a break from superhero movies for like two, three year window and just, know. you know. Marvel Studios can't make any of the films. That's the problem. It's yeah, because the like... actors are supposedly going on strike now too, uh, from what I've heard. Do you know what annoys me about that the most? Now look, studios have made their bed and now they've got to lie in it because to keep the 
forever profit increase in the share price mm -hmm. going and yeah, all the yeah. dividends to keep flowing they have mm -hmm. to keep outdoing the previous financial quarter you can't do that with three nope. medium risk medium budget films what you do is you make a 300 million film that then the forecast is to bring back the billion it makes no sense when you look at what a24 it's, has been doing what what fox searchlight have been doing what neon's been doing in the last 10 years they aren't the films that people want to see however the people that lose the money when a film fails, it isn't the actors, it isn't the script writers, it isn't the VX specs, it's the studio that takes it on the nose. And this is why I didn't like what Scarlett Johansson did, because if the film failed, she didn't have to give any money back. So she was yeah. trying to get the money on the premise that if it had had a normal theatrical run, well, look, everybody's losing money, not just studios, people. And you think you're fucking immune to that and you want your cut of it. Okay, fair enough, it's contractual. But the thing that bugs me about the scriptwriter strike, it's not the scriptwriters, they're getting the dick end of the stick. What bothers me is the sole drain on any production budget is the actors. If we're talking any small, medium or wide release film, when you look at even like things like Two Leslie, it was made for like a million. The actors would took smaller paychecks for an independent film. Look at the way that Wes Anderson manages to put together those cassettes for the prestige of being in a Wes Anderson film. However, irrespective, it's the on-screen talent that drains the production budget. Why are studios being held accountable when they're the people that lose when everything goes wrong? They also make great gains when it goes right. How can you justify something like Red Notice? that every single studio would turn down, but then Netflix, because it was, they'd never make a return on what it would cost to do it. You have Gal Gadot, you have The Rock, and you have Ryan Reynolds. I bet you they're on 50 million each. That's where the money goes. If the scriptwriters want to have a problem with anybody, it should be the actors that are taking all the money and draining it out of the industry. That, that's my opinion. But I mean, it's like anything, right? It's, it's a bubble economy. Like you said, each movie has to beat the next for people to be happy. There has yeah, to be yeah. growth, but nothing can grow exponentially forever. So it's like a bubble. It goes and goes till it pops. And then, mm. oh, superhero movies are done. Then it moves on mm. to the next thing because it can't keep, you, you just can't keep growing it. Everything has mm. its, its plateau, real estate, anything. It's, we live in a bubble economy, right? We go and we go, we keep going till that thing just fucking self implodes. And then we move on to the next thing. We can't be happy with sustainable sustainable mm -hmm. is not good because we're a selfish capitalist society so sustainable is the devil you want to get richer and richer you want more just making a profit isn't good enough anymore no it's not mm -hmm. while everybody's it, arguing it, the small things on twitter they're happy for us to be distracted with that shit mm -hmm. with fucking abortion with guns with fucking don't say gay nonsense and all that sort of stuff they're happy for that because it takes our attention off the big issue that would become unsustainable. All the money now is going to individuals instead of coming back to states and taxes. That force is bolted. It's insane because Alan Moore talks about all this in his books. <laughs> he does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he covers every single one of these things. Talks it in depth. <laughs> we should have like a cabinet. Alan Moore's in charge. We'll bring Grant Morrison in. We'll... <laughs> Uh, Warren Ellis. <laughs> yeah, It'll yeah. just be like the Britain, like Garth Ennis. We'll just have them all there and let them run the country. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, that would be wild. <laughs> well, that's going to be an easy edit for me. It will just be cut 10 minutes later.
Cut. <laughs> uh, but I mean, this is all from an offshoot from talking about this book, though. It does touch on yeah, a lot yeah. of different subject matters, like we said. And uh, I'll, I'll go back to like the super sexy scene. So I was like, oh, shit. And then you get to the scene with Judy, the punk, uh, punk looking girl. Yeah. You know, where they're walking through the cave, then it goes black. And I'm like, really? Like, would people really do oh, that? Yeah, of course, yeah. the guy, for sure, the guy's dumb. Guys are dumb. But then, like, that comes back to be explained later. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, now, now I get it. Now it makes sense. And the setup for that is really well done, too. Yeah. Yeah. They don't really hint at it. It's a pretty good twist that you don't really see coming. But it is kind of odd, like throughout the whole book, then all of a sudden, ooh, you throw that in there where it gets kinky in the middle of them in this cave with a bunch of killers. I don't know. This isn't like, some teen horror movie, you know? Like, we got to stop for a quick... Uh, <laughs> one, like, two, maybe three, you guys should stay bam, on task here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it comes back and that gets explained, which leads to another fucking grotesque... Uh, oh, man. Bizarre detransformation to the crow. Holy uh, fuck, that whole scene, the lead up, the drinking or eating of the fruit, the withering of the body, and then it's just the head with like this withered little umbilical cord looking thing. It's so mm -hmm. fucking weird and bizarre. Yeah, that's in the one, 143, 144, and 145 pages. And that's when Constant gets trapped and he comes too. The big reveal of Judy is there. Fucking once again, Constantine's plans go he's the guy that all his plans go to shit that's constantine if ever you guys have a friend that's like constantine don't get caught up in their machines and plans because you know it's gonna go to shit <laughs> every fucking time hellblazer constantine the, the guy Setting up a podcast. yeah exactly <laughs> like it never goes to plan people always die and he always comes out of it so, I mean, if you're friends with Constantine, you might as well get your fucking, your will set up because you know you're not going to make it. But I like having friends though, Joe. Don't tell people that. <laughs> Tim, are you still my friend or are you listening to Joe? <laughs> I tell you what, one thing I can't believe we spoke, we spoke about yet. The final couple of issues with the finale oh my god that was so good it was so good it felt like it had that genuine avengers end of phase feel and i was thinking yeah. how is he going to do this economically in two issues like without a shadow of a doubt this would have been a summer long event if it was done in the modern era and there would yeah, have been yeah. tie-ins and there would have been like like battle zones and the punisher would have been there and batman <laughs> <laughs> the darkness of the entity where it swallows them and then you get that yeah uh, uh, ask you a question then it spits them yeah. out right you just taught me this vengeance he takes the negative traits right of everyone mm. and that's where the big moment kind of like lord of the rings where swamp things just walking through this shit not doing anything they make fun of lord of the rings the hobbits all they do through the whole thing is walk 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 and this is kind of the same thing swamp thing mm -hmm. doesn't there's not much he just walks through every issue right like we said like not doing much yeah. all the action yeah. is around him and he doesn't do shit and what <laughs> at the end same thing he just walks up to this big the darkness the evil the entity doesn't try to fight it doesn't walks into it <laughs> you know yeah. it's like you'd think it's anticlimactic but it's so fitting and it's so well done it's fantastic and he just walks in and like i don't know what to tell you I don't know anything. I'm not going to try to convince you of anything. I'm looking for answers myself. 
and yeah. you know that creates the whole yeah it's fantastic I, know, I love the way that it was set up from from that almost disposable thing where he goes to his like ancestral plane and he meets all the other uh, yeah. green the trees yeah part yeah. of the trees and he comes away with what he feels is a riddle wrapped up in a enigma yeah an enigma yeah yeah, yeah. And then he takes it away and he's quite sullen and he's like, look, this Constantine guy is just fucking me about. He's just dripping me information to keep me on the line. And then when he repeats what they say to him and he sort of interprets it as without evil, hope can't be present. You need the positive to grow from the negative, even in a symbiotic way, kind of almost like the light and the dark in Star Wars, like they coexist and need each other to exist. And I was like, oh, God, he's so good. He's yeah. so good. He's so good. Yeah, and at the end, like, Constantine, when they have the circle of sorcerers, like, yeah. watching this big event, and then Constantine's like, what's the swamp creature doing? And he's like, nothing. It, it's The specter's been defeated. That's it. Our yeah. hopes are lost. He was our biggest card, right? And then he's like, no, this is what I've been preparing him for for these last 20 issues of the story. This yeah. is what I've been preparing him for. He's the he's the wild card he's the, the hidden card up my sleep is actually swamp thing and it's just yeah. it's just great how they set it up and how he goes to the parliament and trees and feels rejected mm. by the, the people he feels he should belong to and ha answer his questions and anyway i just love the way they like tim says how alan moore brings it all together to this mm -hmm. one moment pivotal moment at the end and uh, yeah it's fantastic yeah the visuals though uh, where they go into the monster. Yeah. Like those visuals where they're kind of floating in this black mass yeah. and it's black with just purple, a uh, high contrast of the black with the purple and they're just floating there talking. It's so well done. It's fantastic the way they, they did that visually. Who are the art team, Joe? It switches, but in the final issues, I believe it's, uh, is it Wanch <laughs> or is it Bissette came back for that? I know John Totalden started doing actual pencils and inks he started drawing the whole thing so the last issue is that issue 50 i'm on here Let's yeah see. the whole creative team's there you have steven Bissett, rick veitch and john Tuttlebin. so mm. they're all there at the end that's like pretty much the three guys that worked on it the whole way through yeah. uh, intermittently depending on the stories they each took turns uh, and you have wanch uh what's his name he, he did a few on uh previous i can't remember his name wanch something i I can't remember his first name, but he did a few uh, issues as well. It's kind of interesting too. Uh, Stan, like... Stan Wanch is a... Wanch. Stan Walk or Walch. Well, anyway, he does a, quite a few issues as well. Yeah. What did you think of the art overall? There's a part about a third of the way through when I went, they've really given up on drawing Swamp Thing. He's just like a big green guy with a couple of like uh, leaves on him. However, in that final stretch, it was when he went to Brazil for the Council of Trees. And what I loved about it was the intricacy and how they differentiated between the American Abora culture and the Brazilian Abora culture. So he mm -hmm. was made of the Brazilian plants and had a very clear and distinct look when he was in Brazil. Mm -hmm. But I feel mm -hmm. like there was a middle part where they just gave up on drawing him. There's like, yep, he's just big and green. Mm -hmm. Like any book, you right, you have deadlines and stuff. So the art's going to wane one way or the other. And I think that's why they had three different artists drawing this yeah. book, just to try to keep that monthly deadline. You know, guys that have been drawing Swamp Thing for multiple issues, like uh, Stephen Bissett and John uh, Totalbin and even Rick Veitch. 
Beach, you know, he drove quite a few. So I thought it was pretty consistent all the way through. But like you said, those nice little touches of uh, his look altering a little bit, depending on uh, which countries he's in. And it was cool. It it created a uh, visual diversity in his look that, uh, you know, punched it up a bit, gave you a little, uh, a little something different to look at. I was a bit sad that they didn't have the poster pages at the end of every other issue. A lot less big splash pages. I think that's Stephen Bissett, right? His style okay. and his layouts were a lot of those splash pages and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I don't know if there's just too much story to tell, like to fit too much yeah. into each issue. So they're like, well, we can't devote two pages to just this sprawling, beautiful layout, right? We got to get the story rolling. We got to get through it. So maybe it limited the artists to how they could do their layouts. And they were sprawling and beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some beautiful double-page splash, full-page splash. But uh, like I was telling you about the first parts, where Rick uh, Veach drew in Stephen oh, Bissett yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and John Tuttleman, where he drew uh, issue 31, page 20 or 21, there's a whole page with a sequence of panels with two cops with some banter back and forth. And Rick Beach drew in, the two cops are actually Steve, Stephen Bissett and John Tuttleman. So That's if cool. you guys go, the older comics, issue 31, pages 20, I believe 20 or 21, depending on if you have the trade or if you have the floppies. But anyway, Rick Beach had some fun drawing those two regular That's artists early on. And yeah, he threw them in there. And supposedly they make another appearance in issue 75, which I'm sure Rick Beach must have drew that one as well and threw them back in. Yeah. yeah. So that's pretty cool. Tim, what was the, I can't, I wanted to talk about it, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. You have it open in front of you. Well, there wasn't the same one shots as there were at the end of the first two volumes, but there was a little one shot story towards the end, but I can't put my finger on what it was about now. Let's see. While I look into that, can I ask you guys, last time, Matt, we talked about the paneling. And I remember thinking like (laughs) it was sort of dynamic and you maybe thought it was busy or... Um, uh, disorienting, confused, disorienting. What did you think of this? Yeah. It was a bit more restricted. It was used more sparingly, which, for one, it made it more impacting, and second of all, made it less confusing. I agree completely. Yeah, it was somewhat more conventional, and I agree. When it, they did mix it up, it was more impacting, and in some ways, easier to follow. And also, there was none of the landscape pages. The only format that that works well is with floppies because you can open a floppy out because of the the gutter loss and even trades. Like if you, unless you want to completely bust the spine, then you just can't view them adequately. Oh, it's the um. Oh, the Winchester, uh, Winchester story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, does that go two issues though? I think or does that wrap up in one. I think it's two. Okay. No. Oh, no. 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 It wraps up in no, one. You're it's right. One. It's one yeah, issue. It's, it's one. a one shot. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm glad we all agree with me. You know, I find it's the best, the best stance to have. <laughs> and then, then that one is actually followed straight up with the, uh, with the crossover, uh, the crisis crossover issue. Mm. How do you think that would feel having? Because Swamp Thing's not very present, is he, in the Winchester one? Is he? No. No. Not at all. How do you think that would feel on a monthly solicit? Do you think you'd be like, ah, oh, here we go again? And then you've got the, the crisis one. I mean, that crisis one was just why even? Actually, the boogeyman was a one one shot too. That one was good. Yeah, I like that yeah. one. Oh yeah, where he picks up the hand and it starts to grow. There's yeah. some good visuals in that one for sure. 
and the whole yeah. story the whole time is told from the boogeyman just you see the mm. eyes yeah mm. beautiful visuals on how to tell a story like visually there's a mm. lot of interesting stuff yeah in the back of yeah, the I absolute think... they actually have the a few of the pencil pages and they have a few well i think it's an entire issue just done in pages in annotation and then they have an inked one and this is actually startlingly beautiful with just the ink now i don't know what yours mm. was like but the absolute editions have been recovered and sometimes the over inking jars a little bit with the vibrance with the, of the yeah. recolor but having seen it just with ink it's it's pretty breathtaking some some books should just be black and white to be honest i mean some books are just more effective more beautiful just with the the inks but at the end of this one book four you have that one pinup by uh john totalbin that's a beautiful pinup at the end there that's fantastic that he did in 95 for a special gallery book that dc put out yeah and it's beautiful yeah it is really pretty the, the thing about that is it's kind of funny it's like the most anti-swamp thing pose you could have where he's like superhero action pose when all he yeah. really does is walk through the story but it is <laughs> gorgeous and he just stands there right just like in the boogeyman puts his hand on a tree then oh the tree grabs me like he's <laughs> yeah. just standing there watching people you know like peeping tom fucking swamp things a peeping tom man <laughs> <laughs> you sort of forgive his behavior because he is swamp thick his behavior would not go unchecked if he was a, a regular human being <laughs> <laughs> oh I no 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 no! i know the issue that i was thinking of now i know 100 percent the issue i was thinking about the guy foraging for psychedelics oh, in the forest. Yeah. yes that's the first reason. story that's the yeah. first story of book four and that's he finds he finds some of the what would you call the yams like, the sweet yeah, potato looking uh he takes it back and he is first of all approached by a friend whose wife is dying of cancer and he's known this guy's obviously like a uh, a known supplier of psychedelic substances and he yeah. says look just anything to make her pain go away and his wife has this ethereal experience where she she passes away in absolute bliss and understanding and mm -hmm. then this ne'er-do-well comes round and basically steals from him and then he has this atrocious uh, hellish experience where he's on fire and he's being pursued i just love the way at the end he looks at it and goes yeah well this clearly just shows you what you are inside and he says well i think i'm a good guy but i don't think i'll bother <laughs> <laughs> yeah he doesn't want yeah, to take a take offense and that's like a callback to the earlier parts where abigail and swamp thing how they can connect physically yeah. without like actual yeah. physical intercourse and stuff is eating the the fruit you connect on mm -hmm. an astral plane and mm -hmm. it's cool that they brought that book and i wonder if alan moore was like you know he and his woman they do a lot of like fun oh, stuff like yeah, that yeah. just to, you know to inspiration to be more accurate in the descriptions of uh you know of all that stuff so i wonder yeah. I mean, he he seems well, like the type of dude that probably dabbled in uh, in psychedelics a little bit. Well, uh, I know I've told this anecdote before, but it's been a little while, so I don't mind recycling it. I can't remember the title that he took on for uh, Robert Liefeld because all he was doing was basically making profit, no? X. Yeah, yeah, he was making like X Men analogs, and then he got and Alan Moore said, "Look, I'm going to just rip up the character and start from scratch if I'm going to do this." 
and nobody would touch him at that point and because he'd fallen out with everybody basically mm -hmm. and and he completely revitalized that title and Liefeld says what you have to understand about him is you'd given him an advance on six or 12 issues or mm -hmm. however many it was he'd spend it all on bugle and then you wouldn't hear from him until he'd run out of money so he'd <laughs> ask for another advance and then he'd say, well, I've not had any pages for the last advance. So two days later, he'd get like, he'd get like 50 pages and then he'd be like, can I have some more money now, please? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it was Youngblood or Profit. It was one of those two titles that Liefeld got him on to reboot kind of deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't know that. That's cool. How did it go? Did, did Was he on it for a while? Yeah, I think about 50 issues. I don't right? know. I don't, it, I don't, it went I really no well. idea. It's seen as one of Image's best best works. Really. So to finish off, at least this part of the podcast, we usually say to him, "There's no point giving it a mark out of ten because you either read something or you don't read something." However, I am going to split this into two. I think I said I wouldn't recommend somebody read the first part of this mm -hmm. saga of the Swamp Thing <laughs> series of episodes. I said probably not. It is good enough to read, but I'd always recommend something else before it. In the context of this second part of this, would you recommend it? And then would you recommend it on the whole? I would definitely recommend the second part. And I would say that you probably, I would recommend it on the whole, largely because you probably should read the first third to get the second third. Um, but the second third is so good that I would send people back. Yeah, completely agree. That's where I am yeah. on it. In actual fact, I am now more excited about the first part, knowing that this is the reward at the end of it. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. And I'm kind of wondering, like, what is going to happen in the in the final third? I mean, now that we've defeated the nothing, like, what, what, how, how are we gonna? I can from there. Part answer that. And do you want to know, or would you rather just find out for yourself? No, I, that's rhetorical. I'm just going to find out for myself. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean more about the structure. I mean more about the structure as opposed to the oh, sure. yeah, yeah. beats. Are you sure? I think. Well, no. That if the way you're saying that makes me think I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just because, like I said in the first one, it's really difficult to find. There's a scarce amount of material about Swamp Thing on podcasts or on YouTube. It's really strange, actually, how fewer things there are to gather information from and there's a few old in like hacky interviews with alan moore perversely the only thing of any use is there's a podcast and they do hour-long breakdowns of every single issue oh wow yeah i know that's commitment right <laughs> seriously uh i loved it and that book three it justifies the whole series alan moore gets to be fun creative with with his ideas with his uh like the sub stories with an overreaching story that Constantine is kind of like that narrator of the whole thing where he mm. sends Swamp Thing on these little mini adventures. So definitely, man, if you're thinking that first part is a slog, like we we're saying before, if you're trying to get someone into comics, this isn't the thing you'd send them to. You'd send them to mm. go read some Donny Cates to start or something. Mm. Someone who's starting to drink beer, you don't start them on an IPA or a bitter ale. You give them a blonde, then... Yeah. Let them develop their taste till they're able to drink a bitter ale or an IPA or something that's got a little more body to it, right? You can roll it in your <laughs> mouth and discover all like, oh, there's a little bit of this. A you know, that's Alan Moore. It takes a sophisticated yeah. palate. So you got to build yourself up to there. You're not going to mm -hmm. love it right off the bat. And this is what this is. 
he changes it up enough that you're like, oh shit, this is fun. Cause each story kind of differs a little bit and it gives it a little extra flavor, changes up the vibe. And uh, man, once you start reading those, like you said, each story is fantastic in book three, you're reading them. And I don't think there's a dud in the bunch. Don't mm -hmm. read this thinking it's going to be some happy fun times. It's not, this book is heavy. It definitely makes you feel something physically, not in a good way which mm -hmm. I think is fantastic for someone to be able to do that. I mean, is just outstanding. So this book for those reasons is fantastic. And I think maybe start people off with something similar, but a little lighter in tone, and then they can get on this and read it and be like, really I appreciate think it. Something that was heavily influenced by this, that would actually be a good introduction. Uh, your almost chapter and verse is Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, cause you're saying you want to know what, the third third is this was such a hit that it was supposed to end after probably that 50th issue. And then they're yeah. like, well, this is doing too well. So let's come up with more. So they, Alan Moore, I think, got shoehorned and forced into doing the rest of this story. I think that's what Matt was getting to. Without saying too much, from again, I've not read it, but <laughs> issue by issue, there's a one-upsmanship. In actual fact, the, the artist started to write much of the issues and then were proofread mm -hmm. by Alan Moore. Oh, interesting. Well, we'll see how it goes. I mean, let's not be swayed by what I've read online, Tim. I would say that we are indeed the experts and we are the ones that should be listened to and copied. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and We're the tastemakers. Yeah, and there's just one thing that I wanted to pick up, particularly on what Joe said, and I think that is that we can all agree that Donny Cates is the Bacardi breezer of comics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You want a breezy, nice, light, drink, fruity drink? That's uh, that's Kate's, man. Kate's that fruity, uh, lighty, light summer drink, you know? That's so funny. Uh, Careful, he's yeah, going to yeah. cancel you on Twitter. <laughs> oh, fuck him. He never replies to I don't, messages. I don't give a shit. You can't yeah. cancel someone who doesn't give a shit. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck Twitter. I'm leaving it. Hi, I'm back, everyone. Shut <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm back. Oh, no, I just had something to promote. I needed to get back. Oh, and then it'll, then Elon it'll Musk. Go. Elon Musk bought fucking Twitter. I'm leaving. How many people said that? And like two days later, they're like fucking <laughs> posting more than they've ever posted in their life. Yeah. You know, it's like, fuck <laughs> off, you bunch of fucking, uh, <laughs> fucking, bunch of fucking, fucking phonies, man. All phonies. Oh, fucking shit. phonies. I think we have a quick, well, we've got enough time. There's no pitter patter yet, is there, Tim? So let's have a no, quick. No, I haven't through. heard. No one's coming down here, so let's yeah. let's have a quick what we've been what we've been up to then in the last week. Have you got anything you'd like to recommend, Tim? Um, boy, I've been reading. Not oh boy, no, I I don't. <laughs> I've only been reading this. <laughs> I have been reading some Stephen King though, actually. So when I went on vacation. I um there was an article on Slate about some of and I've always been like a Stephen King detractor I think like a lot of his novels are just like one good idea that's blown up into like 800 pages um but his short story is very good oh is that is that that Wolverine Joe yeah I, this is what I, I'm reading that, I haven't read it yet we're gonna be covering it on Tuesday oh sweet that I and uh and Blam uh we're gonna be covering his it's free on Kindle Blam so you can pick that up on Kindle for free Cool. So that's uh, uh, Stom Stomo Nahi or whatever. He's a yeah manga guy. Is yeah, that Bill's I brother? That up last Ooh. week. Yeah. Is that it's Bill's brother? Good, yeah. Is that what? Bill's brother. <laughs> Bill Nahi. 
<laughs> but it's good, man. It's like this uh, cyber, sci-fi, cyber horror action shit. It reads real fast because there's a lot of action. And this is a case where, like Matt was talking about the coloring on the Swamp mm-hmm. Thing, how the heavy inks and stuff, how the coloring muddles a lot of the art. Well, and guess what, Matt? Guess who color- colors this? No, my oh. favorite fucking colorist. Guess who? They should be shot and drowned, and they should never be allowed to touch a fucking comic for the rest of their lives. Oh, no. Fucking Guru FX, man. Oh, fucking oh, Guru they FX. They should never. Oh, I hate them too with a passion. I fucking hate them. I was looking through it. Repulsive. It ruins everything. That's yes. shit. Yeah, they are shit. And I knew you'd appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> At the end, they have a bunch of panels black and white. I'm like, God damn, his this book looks so much better in black and white. And I was like, how could the colorist fuck up so poorly? Like it's some of the panels are okay. Like they, they maybe do one good panel for every four, like Guru. But then I went and looked and I saw Guru FX. I was like, what was Marvel thinking back in the 2000s, early 2000s? I like, I don't get it. I don't understand. Everything Guru touches it's is terrible. It is. It's terrible. It's horrible. It's like the only, it's like going back to like Windows 98 where you only have 46 colors. <laughs> like this is but this is the, the yellow. This is the red. This is the blue. This is the light blue. I can't like, I cannot I cannot wrap my head around how they've stolen a career for so long and no one's just said to them or or artists go I don't want to work with them because they're just going to fuck yeah. up my lines. Yeah. And wow. it's almost like the best colorists don't try to one-up the artists. They try mm. to marry, compliment, right? That's mm. the best kind of artist you can do is a colorist that compliments, not trying to do one one man's up ship, you know, over like, oh, he's good. Well, I'm going to try to make, like trying to be noticed. As a colorist, you shouldn't try to be noticed. You should yeah. blend in. And that's what makes it a, a beautiful, harmonious uh, uh, book, like visually. And I don't yes. know, Guru just doesn't have it. I want to, just for any listeners that don't know quite how bad it is, it's like going to a children's Christmas pantomime and the main actor has his dick out. And it's not just on <laughs> one, it's on every single performance, every matinee, every <laughs> every single performance. And nobody has told him to put his dick away yet. Like it's like <laughs> children are crying, <laughs> people are booing. There's bad reviews online, but yet this guy has still not put his dick away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's horrible. Like I was looking at it, and I'm like, it's okay. Like there's some beautiful panels, and I was like, it looks cool. But I was like, there's something off about the coloring. Then I got to the back, and I saw the black and whites, and I was like, God, they messed up. They should have just like just look at that cover. You know, they should have just gone more subtle and done yeah, spot same. coloring like do black and white and give it like some punch here and there with colors you know yeah. and no kind of like they Sin went City. with fucking it would have been so visually striking like so mm-hmm. much more and no they had to go with fucking guru fx so funny where he struggles are the smaller panels like the big splash pages guru does a fairly <laughs> i'll be kind and say uh competent job of it but wolverine's face he just doesn't know how to color it Wolverine has a pale grayish yeah. tone to him, and he just does a horrible job with it. But the landscapes and stuff like that, the backgrounds, the skies are okay. 
But when it starts getting into like the smaller panels and the action, yeah, yeah, he yeah. just does not have it. Is it yeah. one guy or is it a collective? I don't know. I think it's a studio. I think it's one of those studio, studios yeah. that they subcontract to and they have a farm of underpaid people that knew how to use mm -hmm. Photoshop. It's like a sweatshop color studio, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I, I would, have you got anything else? Sorry, Joe. Uh, no, that's what I've been, re well, I've been watching The Bear. Oh, oh that's good. season two. Uh, oh, season two out? Oh, yeah. I, didn't, I, didn't I enjoyed that. season oh, one it? more, but there's one episode, the Christmas episode. Woo! You want it? You want to do something for Christmas? Go watch the Christmas episode of the Bear. Oh, holy sweet. fucking shit! You could do a whole episode on that one episode. Oh like, my god, it's good. Yeah, you have to watch the Christmas episode of the Bear. Cast yes. is fucking mind blowing. The fucking cast they have for that episode. Anyway, uh, you watch season two, man. The Christmas episode is probably one of the better fucking episodic television, like single issue, uh, single issues, single episodes of a series. It's fantastic. It's really good. Sweet. Yeah. So as far as comics go, I am continuing with Department of Truth. Obviously read the, mm. the second absolute, but when I needed a little a little moment away. So I'm about two thirds of the way through the deluxe. I just fucking love this so much. Mm -hmm. I, I can't add much else from what we talked about last time, but it's the precision of its vagueness what it's intentionally not saying is the injury and i'm still completely wrong-footed by what it's going on are they in fact the heroes of the story or the villains of the story is there something broader afoot that will be revealed eventually it's absolutely prestige comic book writing so there's that um i've been watching the films that have been released that are about how did this product come to be and the idea of it's quite nauseating because is this really what we've come to films now how the air jordan was made blackberry like come on air yeah. pretty, pretty good film well acted there's a sense of intrigue and you really do kind of root for them achieving what they set out to and it speaks with a bluntness and with an honesty about how these things work and i think it's it viola davis that's in it yeah she's great is the the taciturn matriarch of the Jordan household and how that the negotiations unfold and actually how she pulls the rug from under them the film still succeeds and indeed the objective of the film succeeds so that's really good Blackberry really really good it reminded me a little mm -hmm. bit of the social network so it's got it, Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny he just seems to play the obnoxious piece of shit so so well but you know that he is the only person in this that knows what they're doing. There's such a dysfunction to everything in this. And every step of the way, it's just waiting for that 1% extra push in the wrong direction until everything fails. And it's really tense and it's really intriguing. And it's only about how the BlackBerry phone came to be and then not be. Really, really good yeah. film. And then <laughs> the third one is Tetris. Now, I watched this film expecting it to be the best of the bunch, and it is by far the worst. Everything in this that, is, that I could say negatively, Tim already said about Atomic Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> I actually watched it. I listened to that episode last week. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think Taron Ed Edgerton's a very good actor. His American accent is atrocious but then i thought he that's how the characters are played but then they show 
video clips of his character in the end credits. It's just appallingly acted. The <sighs> I get it. It was in the you know the the coming down of Soviet wall and a slight amount of intrigue into how that all unfurls, but it's masquerading as some kind of spy film and an action film and a familial drama and it's smashing everything together. And I don't actually believe that there's anyone that's believably likable. In Blackberry, what's his name? Glenn, Glenn, whatever it is from Always Sunny. He's a total cunt, but you know what the boys need in the software company is a total cunt to give them direction. So he is honest about why he's driven, but he still believes in those people and he believes in their product. So when he's driving it forward, it isn't selfless, but he is bringing those guys with him because he needs them. In this, you're basically, you have a guy that's trying to almost steal the rights to Tetris from under the noses of the people that formerly employed him. And those people mm -hmm. are sort of Robert Maxwell and his son. So you don't really like them. But then this guy is still just doing it so he can earn more money. So there's nothing fundamentally likable about any part of this film it's not very well made it's not very well scripted the action sequences try a cheat code of making them look like old graphics and when cars smash into other uh, cars and it's yeah. just kind of like come on guys this isn't do better do better that's yeah. what i say all right um, i it was i was curious about it now i definitely won't uh i had a vague curiosity of watching it and now I probably will never watch it now based on your review of it. <laughs> I mean, it's worth it. <laughs> to, hear it. it it's to hear Tommy Edgerton's like really appalling American accent. Hey, <laughs> I really believe in this game. I think it's going to change the world one day through through this hand. I want the hand hand the handheld rights to Tetris, and I'm going to take them back to America, and I'm going to change the world with it. It's kind of like, look, <laughs> it's a fucking computer game, mate. One. Yeah, it changed the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, one, it's a fucking computer game. Two, you're only doing it to make a lot of money. And three, get a fucking voice coach. <laughs> you bone <laughs> idle, work shy, lazy, good for nothing, cunt. <laughs> probably Tetris, Tetris was probably one of the the best babysitters of the 90s, right? That's pretty oh, yeah. much. Yeah, the late 80s, early 90s was probably Tetris was the best babysitter you could, you could ever get. On the would you watch them, wouldn't you watch them? I would say watch Air, it's really good. Ben Affleck, back to his directorial best. Definitely mm. watch Blackberry, a really, really good film. And probably don't bother with Tetris, is what I would say. Well, sounds good. What an absolute pleasure to have you both with, well, to have both with me. And what a pleasure it is to have Joe with us. Thank always you. Fun. Always fun. Glad that the, that the scheduling worked out this time. <laughs> oh. Almost, almost came so close to falling apart, but pulled it together. Sorry, guys. Know? Yeah. Was... <laughs> Thanks for accommodating me. <laughs> well, well, last week it was the hand, which oh, I was yeah. like a blessing in disguise because I was so backed up on my reading last week. I didn't even crack Swamp Thing open. I was going to be like, sorry, Matt, I can't make it. I mean, <laughs> when he's like, oh, that's fine. I burnt my hand. We'll, we'll, we'll push it to next weekend. So I was like, perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's quite funny because I remember the last time we had you on I think one of the final things we said to you was like oh you're back next week <laughs> a year later <laughs> yeah, two, months, two months later <laughs> but you'll be back yeah. with us for Superman, Superman. 
yeah. And Superman. the final part of the final part of Swamp Thing. Of Swamp so Thing. yeah, so that's they're both in August. Sounds good. Yeah, man. I'm sorry. Thanks. I just I just looked at the messages and Tim said, "Can you hear me?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I can hear you, Tim. We've been taken for about <laughs> like hours ago. Episode's <laughs> over. No, no, no audio for Tim." <laughs> That'd be funny, but it wouldn't be beyond me, though, would it? Let's be fair. <laughs> <laughs> We've had some mishaps. Yeah, uh, um, it happens. Do you want to say good goodbye to the people, Tim? Yeah, goodbye, everybody. And uh, many thanks to Ashburn and Council Bluffs. And of course, <laughs> Brussels, as always. Yeah, let, you know, let's not forget the, the OG. The OG. The OG. That's right. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks to all the listeners who tuned in. I hope you had a good time because we did. So, yeah, and I hope, I hope that gets contagious and you guys get more listeners because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like hanging out at the pub, having a beer, just talking totally. shit. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, do you want to give Do you want to give your stuff a bit of a plug? Yeah. Uh, usually we uh, do two weekly episodes of the Pink Buzz. You can find that on YouTube under Graphic Vandalism. Uh, we usually do episodes on Tuesday nights and Friday nights. We usually go live. Yeah. So you can find us there. We talk about comics, movies, shows, and music, depending on uh, what tickles our fancy and uh, time permitting. You know. So. Well, you could do what oh, I yeah. do, and you can listen to it the next day when you're in the shower. Whenever, and, yeah. And I always think it's that nice that, that Joe's speaking to me while I'm nudie and wet. <laughs> 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 okay, so and that only leaves me the regular co-host Matt. Thank you very much for listening to the end, and indeed listening to the end. And you can find us if you're listening on the podcast location. Then we're also on YouTube, as we said earlier. Please hit subscribe. Please follow us. We're on Instagram and Twitter. And that's the end underscore pod. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. And that really leaves me one more thing to say. We have been, and this is the end. Yeah. Always a good time. Always a good yeah. time. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was fun. <laughs>